I'm sure each one of you have had the experience of someone coming to you and saying, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Maybe that very phrase conjures up some memory of such an occasion. And usually the choice is between hearing the good news or the bad news first, right? And uh, I remember the story I read one time of a doctor who told his patient, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that you only have one week to live. In shock, the patient asked, well, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? The bad news is I was supposed to tell you last week, but I forgot. <laughs> Often it seems as though the good news, bad news is simply relative, isn't it? In this world, different variations of bad news. And this week we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, and thus far Paul has addressed the, the believers actually in Rome with, a, with an amazing, first of all, an amazing description in chapter 1 of the wickedness of the world. And just as they were about to say, well, yes, we agree, amen, preach it, brother, he said, wait a minute, sin is sin. And there is sin in the church as well. We've all sinned, right? In fact, he sort of summarizes this concept in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. He refers to this, this experience that he's just taken them through in chapters 1 and 2 when he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged or argued both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, if you can be lost in the world and you can be lost in the church, what's the point of being in the church? You think people ask that question sometimes? And that's the question that he begins this chapter with. In, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? And today we might ask the question, is there any advantage to being a church member? If you can be lost in the church, you can be lost outside the church. Maybe you might even be saved outside of the church or lost in the church, right? So then why, why go through the process? If salvation is an inward experience that is a personal experience, not a community experience. If it's something between me and Jesus directly, not administered by a pastor, not administered by a priest, not administered by the authority of a church. If salvation is this way, then why, why be a member outwardly of the body of Christ? And, and Paul answers his question. He doesn't completely answer it. I think he's going to come back to that later on in the book of Romans. But he says there's many advantages, much, he says, in every way, and he gives one, just one, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. To them were committed the oracles of God. What is he talking about? When he uses this word oracles, he uses the Greek word logia. 
And this is a word that is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, and here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 2. What is he talking about when he says, to them were committed the oracles of God? I believe what Paul is trying to say is there are advantages even though they may not be saving advantages, even though they may not be salvific, there are advantages to being entrusted with the truths of God's Word, the oracles of God, the, uh, the truths of God. The Jews had, as we uh, might mention, the Jews had uh, been given the responsibility of sharing with the nations around them the revelation of God and His will for mankind. Do you understand? God had entrusted with the Jewish nation the opportunity and the privilege, but also the responsibility of sharing the present truth for their time with the world around them. This is, by definition, one of the chief characteristics of what it means to be a part of a visible church, the visible church of God. They've been entrusted with the truths for that time. The Jews had been. Now, can Jews be saved? Yes. Can Jews be lost? Yes. But you know what? There's advantages to living surrounded by the the principles and the the, uh, protection of truth, even if it doesn't save you. I don't know if this is making any sense to you as it is to me. But I can say this. If there were no heaven to be gained or hell to be shunned. If there was no eternal life offered to me through the blood of Jesus, I'd still rather live a life guided by the principles of God's Word. I believe it's a better life. I believe it's a safer life. I believe it's a happier life, more prosperous life. I believe that. If this life was all there is to it, I'd still rather have and live by the truths and the knowledge that's found in the Word of God. And so there's a blessing to being a part of the church, the true body of Christ. The Jews, as Paul is saying in in his day, there's a blessing to being born in the family of Jews, even if you can still be lost while being in in that situation. There is no difference between Jew or Greek. They all can be saved or lost, depending on their belief or unbelief in Jesus. And Paul continues here in in Romans chapter 3, he continues on, and he he argues that that God who judges the earth is going to judge righteously, and He's going to judge based upon one standard. He's not going to apply one standard to one group of people and another standard to another group of people. No, all men's hearts are going to be judged before God in a fair and a righteous way. Whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we approve it or not, we can't change the way God is. We can't change the truth of God's Word. Now, I want you to skip down now to verse 9 again. It says, What then? Are we better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And I'm, I'm suggesting to you today that Paul is beginning his epistle with the bad news so that he can introduce to a an open audience, a, a desirous audience, the good news. 
He's starting with the bad news so that he can introduce the good news. Notice what the bad news is. As it is written, and he's quoting now from the Old Testament Scriptures, Psalm chapter 14 specifically, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their heart is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quite a Quite a diatribe, isn't it? Quite a list. And he's quoting this from the Old Testament. He's quoting it from the book of Psalms. There is none who does good. There's none righteous. And he, just like at the end of chapter 1, he preempted their thoughts, and he thought, I know what you're thinking. That's them and not me. He once again brings it home to them in verse 19. Notice it says, now, what, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, we've got to pause here and unpack this just a little bit. There are a number of uses of the word law in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. There is sometimes we find the law refers to the Ten Commandments, right? We're familiar with that, James um, speaks of it as the perfect law of liberty, and he quotes a couple of the commandments, making it very clear what he's talking about. There's sometimes when we talk about the law, or the New Testament talks about the law, that it is referring to the ceremonial law, the, 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 the instructions the Israelites had as to how to properly go about the sanctuary service. Um, and yet there are other times where the law is speaking of the entire five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. It's sometimes referred to as the law of Moses. It's sometimes referred to, when you see this phrase, the law and the prophets, when you see that phrase, you can almost be certain it's not talking about the Ten Commandment law. It's not talking about the ceremonial law. It's talking about the Old Testament, and its major divisions are the law, the law of Moses, the five books, and the prophets, the other books. Um, besides this, we also, they would, they would speak concerning the Psalms, or songs that, or poetry, wisdom, literature, that was the other category. But the Law and the Prophets is a typical expression that is used in the New Testament to describe the Old Testament. Jesus, for example, you remember when he was on the Emmaus Road, he opened to them the scriptures and explained to them in the Law and the Prophets all the things that were written concerning himself. He gave them a Bible study, not from the Ten Commandments and the Prophets, but from the books of Moses and the commandments. Now, what are the books of Moses? The books of Moses are largely, are they not, or at least several of them, are largely describing the sanctuary service, which pointed forward to Jesus, right? And so Jesus is giving these two disciples on the road to Emmaus a Bible study, no doubt including from the sanctuary service, as to how he is the Passover lamb, how he is the one who has come to take away the sin of the world, how that lamb that was slain in the earthly sanctuary, that lamb that was slain by, or the ram that was slain by Abram on Mount Moriah, or those, that lamb that was slain by, by Abel at the garden, the gate of the garden of Eden, all that pointed forward to Jesus. And so the law is often used to describe the books of Moses. Now, 
come back here in your mind to Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. And notice what he's saying. Now we know that whatever the law says, and the, the phrase here, it, it would help us if we could read the original language sometimes. Because you'll notice here, if you were to read it in the, in the Greek, what Paul says is the law, just like it says it in English, the law. There's a definite article before the law, right? And so it's the law. What the law says, what law would he be referring to? He's just quoted an extensive passage from the Old Testament, right? He's just quoted that. And so it, it would appear that Paul is referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. What the Scriptures say, it says to those who are, what does it say? Under the law. Now, how, here we have to pack, unpack another phrase, under the law. What does under the law mean? Well, we could look at a couple of different passages. I wanted to just take you through a quick journey, if you please, through the writings of Paul and look at this phrase in a number of other places. It's not found that many places, but um, if, we, if we find, for example, um, Galatians chapter 4, I'll just look at one or two passages with you really quickly, and um, we'll, we'll look and see what he means by this phrase, under the law. Um, perhaps the easiest thing would just be to assume that he's talking about being under the condemnation of the law, and um, that is perhaps a, a phrase that could mean that. But I want us to look at some other Bible passages. We're going to use Scripture to Scripture here, and we're going to compare and to see what Paul would have meant. Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And this is, the, this is the description Paul is giving of Jesus' birth. And he says, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born, how, what, is it, what does it say there? Born under the law. Now, we might ask, who is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is born under the law, and it says even here in verse 5, to redeem those who were, how? Under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, my friends, Jesus came and He's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This gets a little confusing, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, if he's going to redeem someone under the law, it seems like they should be under the condemnation of the law. That should be a negative thing. And yet, it says he came under the law. The, the reality is, I believe what, the, what is being spoken of here, is that Jesus came in direct fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he... I mean, this is an argument the apostles and disciples made over and over. How do we know Jesus was the, was the Christ? Well, he was born in, Eth, in Bethlehem, just like the prophecy said. There was a voice of weeping, just like the prophet said. He, and they go through all the different prophecies. His, 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 coats, his garments would be divided, but not torn. They would, they would pierce him, but not break his bones. He would, and they go on and on and on down the list. All of these are from the law, right? All of these are from the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus fulfilled it. He was born in, in harmony with those things. And Paul here is arguing that Jesus came not just under the law in fulfillment of the law, but He came to redeem those who were under the law, speaking particularly of the Jewish people. Okay? 
And we don't have time to unpack all of Galatians chapter 4 and 5, but Galatians, Paul is arguing, as he is going to argue in Romans, that the Old Testament law does not conflict with the New Testament law. The Old Testament truths do not conflict with the New Testament truths, but rather the New Testament truths amplify and fulfill the Old Testament truths. Okay? And when Paul here in Romans chapter 3, look with me back in Romans chapter 3. When Paul here in Romans chapter 3 is speaking of those who were under the law, I believe he is identifying the Jews themselves because they are the people described by the Old Testament as God's people, God's church, you might say, at that time. In verse 19, for, for we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why would he say that? Once again, friends, he's writing to religious people. He's writing to Jews, and they're going to be tempted to say, that description you just quoted from Psalms, that applies to everybody else out there. It doesn't apply to me. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He would write what is said, it says in the Old Testament to those to whom the Old Testament was given, wouldn't he? Does that make sense? God would not say something to you that was meant for something else, somebody else. He, he wrote it in the law. What things that are contained in the law are written to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And friends, that's the reality. I keep bringing this back to my present day experience. Paul seemed to think that it was human nature to think that other people needed the gospel. He seemed to think that it was human nature to assume that other people were in that case, that situation, that condition, but not me. I'm good enough. By the way, I'm better than somebody else out there, right? That's our temptation. We compare ourselves among ourselves, as he says in 1 Corinthians, which is not wise. And we become comfortable. And Paul says that all, every mouth should be stopped and all the world should become guilty before God, including those of us in the church. You and I, need a Savior. That's the bad news. I like the way bad news in God's economy prepares the way for good news. In fact, someone was just saying that last night I heard this phrase. The idea that in the world, a good time is followed by a bad time. But in God's economy, a bad time is followed by a good time. There's bad news, but it's only to open the heart, to set the table for the good news. We serve a wonderful God because Romans doesn't end there. It would have been an awful thing if Paul had somehow had a heart attack or in some other way the letter to Romans had ended at the end of verse 20, at the end of verse 19 that all the world might become guilty before God. 
Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, once again, he's using this definite article, the law. He's referring, I believe, back to the Old Testament Scriptures. You could, even, you could probably accurately say that by the Ten Commandment law is the knowledge of sin as well, because James does that. James talks about that, the, the Ten Commandment law being like a mirror, right? We come to it and we see who we are. And uh, that mirror has no capability to cleanse us, however. It only reveals the sin. So whether it's the Ten Commandment Law or the Old Testament Scriptures, you, you, you can parse that as you will. It's the same thing. It's true. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But, but, verse 21 begins, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, I find this to be very interesting because you notice here we have in one verse, we have one verse, the righteousness of God apart from the law, and actually in the Greek there's no definite article there. So it, he's, all, he's probably more like saying apart from reason or justice or rational thinking, that, that it's not fair, in other words, that we could have his righteousness. But anyway, he says apart from the law, as it is revealed in the law. Now, the, how do you have... How do you have the righteousness of God apart from the law being revealed in the law? This doesn't make sense at all. If you have a modern translation like the New King James, you'll even see that the first law in verse 21 is, is uh, lowercase, and the second law is uppercase. That's because there is that definite article before it. This is the law. What law is he talking about? He says in verse 21... He says, uh, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Once again, we remember that when we see this phrase, law and prophets, we remember that this is usually talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And what Paul here is arguing is that the law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, they bring us a knowledge of our sin. They bring us a knowledge of our neediness. They remind us that there's none who do good, no, not one. But... But, Paul says, they may not be as clear as the New Testament writings, but Paul's arguing that the gospel, the good news of the righteousness of Jesus, is found in the Old Testament as well. It's not as though we serve two different gods with two different dispensations. One is an angry, tyrannical, um, judgmental, pejorative God, and the other is a loving, kind, grace-filled God of the New Testament. No, there's one God, and the Bible is not somehow schizophrenic. The Old Testament isn't, isn't contradicting the New Testament, the New Testament contradicting the Old Testament. There's one God in both Testaments. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And His character is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. His love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And salvation in both Testaments is the same. And that's going to be a major theme in chapter 4. We're not going to get there today. But chapter 4... Paul is going to conclusively prove, at least in his mind, he conclusively proves that Abraham was justified by faith before there was obedience, before there was law, before the Ten Commandments were given. Grace, just because of his faith, not because of what he afterward did in obedience, 
but because he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul here is arguing that the law, which the Jews he's writing to, uh, they held dear, the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures condemn you. But friends, not only you who are under the law, you who, you who believe in the law, you who are the, the people of the law, not only do they condemn you, they also present to you Jesus. And this was a new thought for many Jewish minds. That the law contained Jesus. I want you to look at a couple other verses. Very interesting here. I want you to hold your finger in Romans chapter 3. And I want you to see how Peter describes this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verses 9 and 10. And when we get there, say amen. All right, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We'll read verse 8. Whom, not having, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, what salvation? Is this New Testament salvation that, that Peter's talking to? The believers in Christ, right? Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, isn't he? He's talking about Old Testament prophets. He has to be. This is the Bible they had in those days with the Old Testament. And so the prophets, he says, have of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. In other words, if we understand the law correctly, if we understand the prophets correctly, if we understand the Old Testament correctly, we're going to find the message of God's grace and God's salvation. Every page we turn, we ought to find Jesus, the gospel, grace represented, even in the Old Testament. Of course, one of the clearest ways we see that in the Law of Moses, in the books of Moses, is through the sanctuary service, right? And we can follow that sinner as he comes into the courtyard and bringing with him an innocent lamb, his favorite lamb, the best, healthiest, most energetic, lively, playful lamb of the whole flock. Because only the best sacrifice could be enough to bring to Jesus, to represent Jesus. And as he would bring that lamb into the courtyard, and over here on this side of the courtyard, there was a place where the confession would take place. The sinner would lay his or her hand on the head of this sacrifice. This little lamb that did nothing wrong and did not know what was about to befall it. And in symbol, the sinner would transfer that guilt of his sin to the innocent sacrifice to the Lamb. And then, with his own hand, 
with a knife given to him by the priest, the sinner would have the responsibility, the awful, fearful, dreadful responsibility of taking the life of that little lamb. Slicing the throat and the blood could be collected. And you think that's gory, that's grotesque, but it is sin. Sin is gory and grotesque. Sin causes death. And this is what God wanted the Hebrews to be reminded of on a day-to-day basis. There's a high cost to low living. Sin has fearful consequences, and it would have the consequence even of the life of the Son of God. And somehow the Hebrews turned this sanctuary service into a works trip, a legalism trip. So somehow they thought they they began to think that they were going to be saved by doing these things, by observing these days and following these ceremonies, by keeping the Sabbath. And they had all kinds of rules how they could do it better. They wanted to be the best followers of the Old Testament they could possibly be. And so they added to the simple commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They added over a thousand rabbinical precepts of how you could keep the Sabbath, what you could do and what you couldn't do. Every imaginable, imaginable, um, you know, situation was described. Only back then, those rabbis didn't have electricity and they didn't have all kinds of other modern conveniences. So as you know, those, those rules have had to continually evolve. If you've been to some parts of the world where there are plenty of, of conservative Orthodox Jews, you'll find, for example, the elevators, they have Sabbath elevators. You realize that? Because to turn on a light bulb is work. So for sure to push a button on the elevator is work. I mean, the light bulb comes on there, doesn't it? When you push the button. Or even outside in the hall to get the elevator to come, that's work, Right? So on Sabbath, in some of these parts of New York City and other places, the elevators run constantly, stopping at every floor. They go up, they go down. They go up, they go down, so that people can keep the Sabbath and ride the elevators. All kinds of rules were added to the Word of God. Why? Because they were attempting. They were attempting to feel good about their sins or appease the God who was angry because of their sins through their own works. They missed the whole point of the sanctuary service. What was the one thing that the sinner could claim he had done as part of the sanctuary service? He confessed his sin and he killed the lamb. If we're going to brag, friends, the only thing in our salvation we have to brag about, the only thing that we've successfully accomplished, we've killed Jesus. Jesus did the rest. The sanctuary service taught clearly the gospel of grace, salvation by faith. Didn't it? We killed Jesus. Don't blame the Jews' misunderstanding of the Old Testament on the Old Testament. The Old Testament was clear. And Paul even argues that in the first few verses of chapter 3. Don't blame God for their mistakes. 
They completely misconstrued and warped and twisted the Old Testament. But the Old Testament presented the righteousness, which is apart from the law. The righteousness is which is through God, from God, through faith. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Oh, it didn't stop with just the books of Moses. We find the stories of the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, don't they? What about Abram there on Mount Moriah, the very place where the temple in Jerusalem would one day be built? And he builds an an altar. And he's promised his son Isaac, God will provide an offering. God will provide an offering. And as Abram goes through this test of his faith, whether he's going to trust God, Hebrews chapter 11 makes it very clear. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay? It wasn't as though he earned his salvation by going to Mount Moriah. He, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But Hebrews chapter 11 is very clear that he believed, he had enough faith to believe that if God had given him a son when he was as good as dead, when he was as old as he was, when it was impossible to have children, if God could give a miracle baby at that time, he accounted God able to fulfill his promise through Isaac even if he had to raise him from the dead. Hebrews chapter 11 says that even if he had to raise him from the dead, pause and consider for just a moment that no one in the history of the world had ever been raised from the dead before. At least not that we know of. There's no biblical record of anyone pre-Abraham ever having been raised from the dead. And Abraham had enough faith to believe that God was able to fulfill his promises through Isaac, even if he had to raise him from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Do you find... New Testament faith there revealed? Is this a faith of works or of, of belief in God? Is it, is it faith in Abraham's ability or is it faith in God's ability? This is the gospel, friends. And God did provide a lamb. God did provide a sacrifice. He Miraculously there, caught in the thicket, there was that ram that could be offered in the place of Isaac. God provided a sacrifice, typifying, symbolizing the Redeemer that would come who would die in our place to save our lives. The Old Testament is full of examples of these uh, stories that point us to Jesus and the true gospel. I think of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is called the gospel prophet, and it's not without cause. Isaiah repeatedly tells of Jesus' coming, both his first coming and his second coming, But in Isaiah chapter 53, he describes his first coming, and it was a description that the Hebrews did not like to think of their Messiah coming as a lamb, a man of sorrows. But let's just review what Isaiah says here in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. Then when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Friends, is there anything fair about that? Is there anything just about Isaiah 53? Is it fair for us to receive the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus to receive our sins? Do you see why only the, only the creator of the world could take that upon himself? If God had placed that burden on another angel, it would have been the height of unfairness and unjust, injustice. And Paul's arguing in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, the righteousness of God which is apart from justice, apart from any legal merit. We don't deserve it. It's undeserved. It's grace. Jesus came and was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities and yours, that we might be healed, that we might receive His righteousness, that we might have the righteousness testified of, witnessed to by the law and the prophets, by the New Testament writers as well. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we have. In Romans chapter 3, Paul argues the, good, the bad news, but he also persuasively argues the good news. Often like the story of the doctor and the patient that we began with, the bad news and the good news are both bad news. They're just relative. But in the book of Romans, the bad news is really bad. And the good news is really, really good. The bad news is that the Scriptures present a high standard of righteousness as the requirement of salvation. The good news is that Jesus' righteousness more than meets that standard, and He offers it to us freely. The bad news is that we are sinners, whether we're in the church or out of the church. The good news is that Jesus' blood reaches us no matter where we are found. The bad news is that our righteousness amounts to nothing, the good news is that Jesus' righteousness is everything we need. The bad news is that we are great sinners, and the good news is that Jesus is even a greater Savior. The good news is that God is working in my life and yours today to bring us to a knowledge of our need of Him, a relationship with Him. The good news is that the same Lamb whose blood was shed so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven, is right now at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 5, I read the description of what, is take, what takes place before the throne of God. It says in Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth 
and under the heaven, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. The good news, my friends, is much better than the bad news. The good news is that Jesus is the Lamb who is slain for my sins and yours, and He's coming again. He's not only the slain Passover Lamb, but He's the returning Lamb. And one day very soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to do that now. How about you? I want to join those angelic beings in saying, Worthy is the Lamb who died unjustly but willingly for my sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we just pause to thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you though that though the scriptures point out our need, they also point us to a Savior who is greater than our need. Lord, sometimes we're discouraged. And while the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and points us to Jesus, the devil tries to convict us of our sin and says there's no hope. I just want to pray, Lord, for anyone here who may be in that valley of discouragement, that they might see the good news, that they might see Jesus, that they might recognize that though we are sinners, though I am a sinner, Jesus' love, Jesus' grace, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' blood is more than sufficient. Oh, Father, may we be instruments of yours this week to share the good news with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.